Welcome to Unit 6, Sampling. In this unit, we have just one textbook chapter. It's Chapter 8, and it's on sampling. And then a presentation by Dr. Underwood where he talks a bit more about sampling process. And this will give you the info you need to be thinking about sampling for your own research proposal. And that'll be you'll be looking at that further in the problem sheet that you'll be completing during this unit. Um, that's all about quantitative sampling. So sit back, relax, enjoy, and we'll look forward to seeing your problem sheet on quantitative sampling. Chapter 8, Sampling. Sampling is the statistical process of selecting a subset, called a sample, of a population of interest for purposes of making observations and statistical inferences about that population. Social science research is generally about inferring patterns of behaviors within specific populations. We cannot study entire populations because of feasibility and cost constraints, and hence we must select a representative sample from the population of interest for observation and analysis. It is extremely important to choose a sample that is truly representative of the population so that the inferences derived from the sample can be generalized back to the population of interest. Improper and biased sampling is the primary reason for often divergent and erroneous inferences reported in opinion polls and exit polls conducted by different polling agencies such as CNN, Gallup Poll, ABC, and CBS prior to every U.S. presidential election. The sampling process comprises of several stages. The first stage is defining the target population. A population can be defined as all people or items with the characteristics that one wishes to study. The unit of analysis may be a person, a group, organization, country, an object, or any other entity that you wish to draw specific scientific inferences about. Sometimes the population is obvious. For example, if a manufacturer wants to determine whether finished goods manufactured at a production line meet certain quality requirements or must be scrapped and reworked, then the population consists of the entire set of finished goods manufactured at that production facility. At other times, the target population may be a little harder to understand. If you wish to identify the primary drivers of academic learning among high school students, then what is your target population? High school students? their teachers, high school uh, principal, or parents? The right answer in this case is high school students, because you are interested in their performance, not the performance of their teachers, parents, or schools. Likewise, if you wish to analyze the behavior of roulette wheels to identify biased wheels, your population of interest is not different observations from a single roulette wheel, but different roulette wheels for example, their behavior over an infinite set of wheels. The second step in the sampling process is to choose a sampling frame. This is an accessible section of the target population, usually a list with contact information from where a sample can be drawn. If your target population is professional employees at work, because you cannot access all professional employees around the world, a more realistic sampling frame will be employee lists of one or two local companies that are willing to participate in your study. If your target population is organizations, then the Fortune 500 list of firms or the Standard & Poor's S&P list of firms registered with the New York Stock Exchange may be acceptable sampling frames. Note that sampling frames may not be entirely representative of the population at large. And if so, inferences derived by such a sample may not be generalizable to the population. For instance, if your target population is organizational employees at large, for example, you wish to study employee self-esteem in this population, and your sampling frame is employees at automotive companies in the American Midwest, findings from such groups may not even be generalizable to the American workforce at large, let alone the global workplace. This is because the American auto industry has been under severe competitive pressures for the last 50 years and has seen numerous episodes of reorganization and downsizing, possibly resulting in low employee morale and self-esteem. Furthermore, the majority of the American workforce is employed in service industries or in small businesses and not in the automotive industry. 
Hence, a sample of American auto industry employees is not particularly representative of the American workforce. Likewise, the Fortune 500 list includes the 500 largest American enterprises, which is not representative of all American firms in general, most of which are medium and small-sized firms, rather than large firms, and is therefore a biased sampling frame. In contrast, the S&P list will allow you to select large, medium, and or small companies, depending on whether you use the S&P large cap, mid cap, or small cap lists but includes publicly traded firms and not private firms, and hence is still biased. Also note that the population from which a sample is drawn may not necessarily be the same as the population from which we actually want information. For example, if a researcher wants to study the success rate of a new quit smoking program, then the target population is the universe of smokers who had access to this program which may be an unknown population. Hence, the researcher may sample patients arriving at a local medical facility for smoking cessation treatment, some of whom may not have had exposure to this particular quit smoking program, in which case the sampling frame does not correspond to the population of interest. The last step in sampling is choosing a sample from the sampling frame using a well-defined sampling technique. Sampling techniques can be grouped into two broad categories, probability sampling and non-probability sampling. Probability sampling is ideal if generalizability of results is important for your study, but there may be unique circumstances where non-probability sampling can also be justified. These techniques are discussed in the next two sections. Probability sampling. Probability sampling is a technique in which every unit in the population has a chance of being selected in the sample, and this chance can be accurately determined. Sample statistics thus produced, such as sample mean or standard deviation, are unbiased estimates of population parameters as long as the sampled units are weighted according to their probability of selection. All probability sampling have two attributes in common. Number one, Every unit in the population has a known non-zero probability of being sampled. And two, the sampling procedure involves random selection at some point. The different types of probability sampling techniques include simple random sampling. In this technique, all possible subsets of a population are given an equal probability of being selected. Simple random sampling involves randomly selecting respondents from a sampling frame but with large sampling frames, usually a table of random numbers or a computerized random number generator is used. For instance, if you wish to select 200 firms to survey from a list of 1,000 firms, if this list is entered into a spreadsheet like Excel, you can use Excel's RAND function to generate random numbers for each of the 1,000 clients on that list. Next, you sort the list in increasing order of their corresponding random number and select the first 200 clients on that sorted list. This is the simplest of all probability sampling techniques. However, the simplicity is also the strength of this technique. Because the sampling frame is not subdivided or partitioned, the sample is unbiased and the inferences are most generalizable amongst all probability sampling techniques. Systematic sampling. In this technique, the sampling frame is ordered according to some criteria and elements are selected at regular intervals through that ordered list. Systematic sampling involves a random start and then proceeds with the selection of every kth element from that point forwards. It's important that the starting point is not automatically the first in the list, but is instead randomly chosen from within the first k elements of the list. So in our previous example of selecting 200 firms from the list of 1,000 firms, you can sort the 1,000 firms in increasing or decreasing order of their size um, for example, employee count or annual revenues. Then randomly select one of the first five firms on the sorted list, and then select every fifth firm on the list. This process will ensure that there is no overrepresentation of large or small firms in your sample, but rather that firms of all sizes are generally uniformly represented. And it is in your sampling frame. 
In other words, the sample is representative of the population, at least on the basis of the sorting criterion. Stratified sampling. In stratified sampling, the sampling frame is divided into homogeneous and non-overlapping subgroups called strata, and a simple random sample is drawn from within each subgroup. In the previous example of selecting 200 firms from a list of 1,000 firms, you can start by categorizing the firms based on their size as large, more than 500 employees, medium, between 50 to 500 employees, and small, less than 50 employees. You can then randomly select 67 firms from each subgroup and make up your sample of 200 firms. However, since there are many more small firms in a sampling frame than large firms, having an equal number of small, medium, and large firms will make the sample less representative of the population. Basically, it's biased in favor of large firms that are fewer in number in the target population. This is called non-proportional stratified sampling because the proportion of sample within each subgroup does not reflect the proportions in the sampling frame or the population of interest. And the smaller subgroup, that being the large size firms, is oversampled. An alternative technique will be to select subgroup samples in proportions to their size in the population. For instance, if there are 100 large firms, 300 mid-sized firms, and 600 small firms, you can sample 20 firms from the large group, 60 from the medium group, and 120 from the small group. In this case, the proportional distribution of firms in the population is retained in the sample, and hence this technique is called proportional stratified sampling. Note that the non-proportional approach is particularly effective in representing small subgroups, such as large-sized firms, and is not necessarily less representative of the population compared to the proportional approach, as long as the findings of the non-proportional approach is weighted in accordance to a subgroup's proportion in the overall population. Cluster sampling. If you have a population dispersed over a wide geographic region, it may not be feasible to conduct a simple random sampling of the entire population. In such case, it may be reasonable to divide the population into clusters, usually along geographic boundaries. Randomly sample a few clusters and measure all units within that cluster. For instance, if you wish to sample city governments in the state of New York, rather than travel all over the state of, to interview key city officials, as you may have to do with a simple random sample, you can cluster these governments based on their counties, randomly select a set of three counties, and then interview officials from every official in those counties. However, depending on between cluster differences, the variability of sample estimates in a cluster sample will generally be higher than that of a simple random sample, and hence the results are less generalizable to the population than those obtained from simple random samples. Matched pairs sampling. Sometimes researchers may want to compare two subgroups within one population based on a specific criterion. For instance, why are some firms consistently more profitable than other firms? To conduct such a study, you would have to characterize a sampling frame of firms into high profitable firms and low profitable firms based on gross margins, earnings per share, and some other measure of profitability. You would then select a simple random sample of firms in one subgroup and match each firm in this group with a firm in the second subgroup based on its size, industry segment, and or other matching criteria. Now you have two matched samples of high profitability and low profitability firms that you can study in greater detail. Such matched pairs sampling technique is often an ideal way of understanding bipolar differences between different subgroups within a given population. Multi-stage sampling. The probability sampling techniques described previously are all examples of single-stage sampling techniques. Depending on your sampling needs, you may need to combine these single-stage techniques to conduct multi-stage sampling. For instance, you can stratify a list of businesses based on firm size and then conduct systematic sampling within each stratum. This is a two-stage combination of stratified and systematic sampling. Likewise, you can start with a cluster of school districts in the state of New York, and within each cluster, select a simple random sample of schools. Within each school, select a simple random sample of grade levels. 
and within each grade level select a simple random sample of students for study. In this case, you have a four-stage sampling process consisting of cluster and simple random sampling. Non-probability sampling. Non-probability sampling is a sampling technique in which some units of the population have zero chance of selection, or where the probability of selection cannot be accurately determined. Typically, units are selected based on certain non-random criteria, such as quota or convenience. Because selection is non-random, non-probability sampling does not allow the estimation of sampling errors and may be subjected to a sampling bias. Therefore, information from a sample cannot be generalized back to the population. Types of non-probability sampling techniques include convenience sampling, also called accidental or opportunity sampling. This is a technique in which a sample is drawn from that population that is close at hand, readily available, or convenient. For instance, if you stand outside a shopping center and hand out questionnaire surveys to people or interview them as they walk in, the sample of respondents you will obtain will be a convenient sample. This is a non-probability sample because you are systematically excluding all people who shop at other shopping centers. The opinions that you would get from your chosen sample may reflect the unique characteristics of this shopping center, such as the nature of its store. For example, it's a high-end store that will attract more affluent demographic. The demographic profile of its patrons or its location and therefore may not be representative of the opinions of the shopper population at large. Hence, the scientific generalizability of such observations will be very limited. Other examples of convenient sampling are sampling students registered in a certain class or sampling patients arriving at a certain medical clinic. This type of sampling is most useful for pilot testing, where the goal is instrument testing or measurement validation rather than obtaining generalizable inferences. Quota sampling. In this technique, the population is segmented into mutually exclusive subgroups, just as in stratified sampling, and then a non-random set of observations is chosen from each subgroup to meet a predefined quota. In proportional quota sampling, the proportion of respondents in each subgroup should match that of the population. For instance, if the American population consists of 70% Caucasians, 15% Hispanic Americans, and 13% African Americans, and you wish to understand their voting preferences in a sample of 98 people, you can stand outside a shopping center and ask people their voting preferences. But you will have to stop asking Hispanic-looking people when you have 15 responses from that subgroup, or African Americans when you have 13 responses, even as you continue sampling other ethnic groups so that the ethnic composition of your sample matches that of your general American population. Non-proportional quota sampling is less restrictive in that you don't have to achieve a proportional representation, but perhaps meet a minimum size in each subgroup. In this case, you may decide to have 50 respondents from each of the three ethnic subgroups, Caucasians, Hispanic Americans, and African Americans, and, and stop when your quota for each subgroup is reached. Neither type of quota sampling will be representative of the American population, since depending on whether your study was conducted in a shopping center in New York or Kansas, your results may be entirely different. The non-proportional technique is even less representative of the population, but may be useful in that it allows capturing the opinions of small and underrepresented groups through oversampling. Expert sampling. This is a technique where respondents are chosen in a non-random manner based on their expertise of the phenomenon being studied. For instance, in order to understand the impacts of a new governmental policy, such as the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, you can sample a group of corporate accountants who are familiar with this act. The advantage of this approach is that since experts tend to be more familiar with the subject matter than non-experts, opinions from a sample of experts are more credible than a sample that includes both experts and non-experts, although the findings are still not generalizable to the overall population at large. Snowball sampling. In snowball sampling, you start by identifying a few respondents that match the criteria for inclusion in your study, and then ask them to recommend others they know who also meet your selection criteria. 
For instance, if you wish to survey computer network administrators and you know of only one or two such people, you can start with them and ask them to recommend others who also do network administration. Although this method hardly leads to representative samples, it may sometimes be the only way to reach hard-to-reach populations when no sampling frame is available. Statistics of sampling. In the preceding sections, we introduce terms such as population, parameter, sample statistic, and sampling bias. In this section, we will try to understand what these terms mean and how they're related to each other. When you measure a certain observation from a given unit, such as a person's response to a Likert-scaled item, that observation is called a response. See figure 8.2. In other words, a response is a measurement value provided by a sampled unit. Each respondent will give you different responses to different items in an instrument. Responses from different respondents to the same item or observation can be graphed into a frequency distribution based on their frequency of occurrences. For a large number of responses in a sample, this frequency distribution tends to resemble a bell-shaped curve called a normal distribution, which can be used to estimate overall characteristics of the entire sample, such as sample mean or standard deviation. These sample estimates are called sample statistics. Populations also have means and standard deviations that could be obtained if we could sample the entire population. However, since the entire population can never be sampled, population characteristics are always unknown and are called population parameters. Sample statistics may differ from population parameters if the sample is not perfectly representative of the population. The difference between the two is called sampling error. Theoretically, if we could gradually increase the sample size so that the sampling approaches closer and closer to the population, then sampling error will decrease, and a sample statistic will increasingly approximate the corresponding population parameter. If a sample is truly representative of the population, then the estimated sample statistics should be identical to corresponding theoretical population parameters. How do we know if the sample statistics are at least reasonably close to the population parameters? Here we need to understand the concept of a sampling distribution. Imagine that you took three different random samples from a given population, as shown in figure 8.3. And for each sample, you derive sample statistics, such as sample mean and standard deviation. In each random sample, if each one of those was truly representative of the population, then your three sample means and the three sample uh, random samples will be identical and equal to the population parameter. And the variability in sample means will be zero. This is extremely unlikely, given that each random sample will likely constitute a different subset of the population, and hence their means may be slightly different from each other. However, you can take these three sample means and plot a, a frequency histogram of sample means. If the number of such samples increases from 3 to 10 to 100, the frequency histogram becomes a sampling distribution. Hence, a sampling distribution is a frequency distribution of a sample statistic, like sample mean, from a set of samples while the commonly referenced frequency distribution is the distribution of a response from a single sample. Just like a frequency distribution, the sampling distribution will also tend to have more sample statistics clustered around the mean, which presumably is an estimate of a population parameter, with fewer values scattered around the mean. With an infinitely large number of samples, this distribution will approach a normal distribution. The variability or spread of a sample statistic in a sampling distribution is called its standard error. In contrast, the term standard deviation is reserved for variability of an observed response from a single sample. The mean value of a sample statistic in a sampling distribution is presumed to be an estimate of the unknown population parameter. Based on the spread of this sampling distribution, 
It is also possible to estimate confidence intervals for that prediction population parameter. Confidence interval is the estimated probability that a population parameter lies within a specific interval of sample statistic values. All normal distributions tend to follow a 68, 95, 99% rule, see figure 8.4, which says that over 68% of the cases in the distribution lie within one standard deviation of the mean value. Over 95% of the cases in the distribution lie within two standard deviations of the mean, and over 99% of the cases in the distribution lie within three standard deviations of the mean value. Since a sampling distribution with an infinite number of samples will approach a normal distribution, the same 68, 95, 99 rule applies. And it can be said that the sampled statistic, plus or minus one standard error, represents a 68% confidence interval for the population parameter. A sample statistic plus or minus two standard errors represents a 95% confidence interval for the population parameter. And sample statistic plus or minus three standard errors represents a 99% confidence interval for the population parameter. A sample is biased. If its sampling distribution cannot be estimated or if the sampling distribution violates the 68, 95, 99% rule. As an aside, note that in most regression analysis, where we examine the significance of regression coefficients, we are attempting to see if the sampling statistic, or the regression coefficient, predicts the corresponding population parameter, or true effect size, with a 95% confidence interval. Interestingly, the Six Sigma standard attempts to identify manufacturing defects outside the 99% confidence interval, or six standard deviations, with standard deviation is being represented using the Greek letter sigma, representing significance testing at p less than 0.01. Sampling. Sampling is a process of selecting individuals from some population, and there are many ways to gather a sample, and the best ones uh, result in samples that are representative in some way of the larger group from which they're selected. The sample is the group that we gather information from. So one of the first steps when we're considering research is to determine who's our target population. To whom would we like to generalize our results? For example, if you're doing a study that talks about the comparative benefits of two different kinds of reading strategies on, say, reading test scores, the question is, to which group of students would you like to generalize that? Do you want to generalize that to first grade students in Chicago schools? Or do you want to generalize that to first grade students in Illinois, or to first grade students in the U.S., or to first grade students uh, in the world? And how you choose your sample and the methods that you choose for your study will help you build your case for generalizing to those populations. In educational research, the population of interest is the people who possess certain characteristics. And so in my example, I chose first grade students. And it may be first grade boys, or it may be uh, first grade students who have reading disabilities, for example. Now, the population is usually large enough that we can't possibly study all of them. For example, if you were studying the effectiveness of a teacher preparation program, your target population may be all teacher candidates in Illinois. And it's certainly not feasible to study all teacher candidates in Illinois, which is why we would sample we would draw a certain number of individuals using a certain method from that larger group. We would conduct some study, uh, hopefully get some findings, and then based on the sampling procedure we used and the methods we used in the study and the findings that we came up with, we would say that it applies to that larger group and the basis of our argument will be our sampling strategy. This little graphic tries to describe in pictures the difference between a representative sample and a non-representative sample. And in this example, they use a very, very simple 
concept, which is the concept of gender. So supposing we had some population that we wanted to generalize to, and in the population there were about equal numbers of men and women. If we chose a sample using some method where we had two women and ten men, well, that wouldn't be very representative of the population. And our argument for generalizing our results to that population would be harmed by that. So that if we, in, in some method, using some method that we'll discuss soon, chose a more representative sample, in this case where there are six women and six men, our case for generalization is, is much better. I'll give you another example. Suppose for a minute that you receive a grant from the state of Illinois to investigate whether a school breakfast program has the potential for increasing student achievement in some way. And because it's the state, we choose as our population all Illinois students because what the state would really like to know is if we implement this breakfast program across the state, is there potential for um, academic achievement improvement? And so suppose as researchers, because we happen to live in, say, Albany, Illinois, a small rural community in downstate Illinois, suppose we choose a sample of convenience and say, well, we're going to use Albany grade school as the uh, sample for this population. Well, you can see what the problem may be. Uh, the characteristics of the students in Albany, Illinois, would be very different from the students in DeKalb, Illinois, very different from the students in Rockford, Illinois, certainly very different than students in Chicago, Illinois. So if this is our choice, then we've, we've chosen a sample that is not very representative of the state as a whole on any number of factors, including socioeconomic status, the availability of other social safety nets, um, certainly race. And so we'll talk about some strategies for gathering a sample that may include Albany, Illinois, and may also include students in Rockford, Illinois, and some of the other places that I mentioned uh, in, in uh, this presentation. So at the very basic level, there are two main types of sampling, random and non-random. And we'll talk about random first. So random sampling is selecting subjects from the population completely by chance so that uh, there are no biases in the sample. This is a way of controlling for those factors that we talked about earlier, socioeconomic status, race, you know, availability of social safety nets, etc. Um, <clears throat> the, the idea with random sampling is that every member of the population that you've described, so whatever that population is, every member of that population has an equal chance of being selected as a participant in your study, as a member of your sample. So that's the, the basic concept of random sampling. And there's <clears throat> three common ways, and there are more, but there are three very common ways of, of obtaining a random sample, and those are simple random, stratified random, and cluster random sampling. In simple random sampling, as we've discussed, the population is the sample is selected from the population so that all members have an equal chance of being selected. Um, the larger the sample size, the more likely it is to represent the population. Again, if your if your population is all second graders in Ogle County, and you select a sample of ten students, even at random, you have a pretty good chance that you may not be representing the population. Better if you choose a sample size of 50. Better still if you choose a sample size of 200. And there are some guidelines for, for sample sizes that we'll discuss later on. Um, <clears throat> some disadvantages. Uh, number one, as we've discussed with the table of random samples, it's, it's more difficult to do this kind of sampling because you sort of need access to the whole population in order to randomly select, or excuse me, randomly sample um, participants from that. And it, it also does not necessarily ensure that, that subgroups present in the sampling are, are in the same population proportion as in the population. So, for example, in the simple example of gender, suppose that in a population you have a 48-52 split between males and females. If you do simple random sampling, um, the larger your sample, the more likely you're going to get close to that proportion. But it may turn out that you're in your sample, it's uh, 44 um, 56 split rather than the 48-52. And so that's, that's a disadvantage of doing simple random sampling. Particularly if one of those uh, elements, like gender, is very important to your research question. In stratified random sampling, as a researcher, you've identified some characteristic or characteristics that are very important uh, subgroups in your population. So for example, let's go back to the, the, um, the 
school-provided breakfast and, and student achievement. Perhaps you've identified whether uh, families have free and reduced lunch as an important sort of correlated element, a correlated variable in your study. So that if your overall population, let's say, of um, high school freshmen in Illinois, and let's suppose for a minute that 30% of them receive free and reduced lunch. If you conduct a random sample and end up with a random sample in which say 20% of your sample receives free and reduced lunch, there would be an argument that says your sample does not necessarily represent the population because it has a significantly fewer percentage of, of people receiving free and reduced lunch, which may affect whatever relationship you find between uh, uh, school-provided breakfast and student achievement. And so that affects the ability that you have to generalize to, to that population. So in stratified random sampling, then, what you do as a researcher is you say, okay, whatever that percentage is in the population, I'm going to first identify subgroups of the potential sample, and then sample from each of those subgroups at random so that I end up with the correct proportion. So here's another look at stratified random sampling with a picture. In the study that's displayed in the picture, a population of 365 12th grade American governmental students, that's the population to which the study results will be generalized, and that's a researcher decision. The researcher has also decided that gender is an important part of the uh, sample, so that she, uh, the researcher does not want a different proportion of gender in the sample than in the population. So if in the population the the proportion is 60% female, 40% male, the sample should be the same in a stratified random sample. So first we separate the groups into males and females and then sample equally, randomly, from each of those two groups so that the final sample, in this case, of 110 students is 60% female and 40% male. Contrast that from what would happen if you just took a random sample from the 365 students. Chances are you would not get exactly 60-40. And depending on how the random sampling shakes out, you might get something more like 30-70. In cluster random sampling, uh, groups are used as the sampling unit rather than individuals. A common application of this is with schools within a school district. So suppose that our, our population of choice is all of the students in a particular large suburban school district. Let's say they have 70 schools. And so a cluster random sampling, rather than randomly sampling from all of the students in the district, which would give us perhaps 10 students per school and all of the associated uh, difficulties with visiting each of those sites, the researcher might choose instead to sample at random from the schools choosing, say, five or six schools, and then gathering data from all of the students at those schools. So it gives you a, a degree of randomness. It does not guarantee that each student has an equal chance of being included in the study. So it's not true random sampling. Um, and it also gives you uh, an opportunity for a non-representative sample. So if by chance, in a large suburban school district, four of the five schools that you chose at random happen to be on the poor side of town, for example, then all of the students in those four schools uh, are going to have uh, an aggregate, a lower socioeconomic status than the population, which is the whole district. In two-stage random sampling, we basically combine cluster random sampling and individual random sampling. So back to the school district example, we would sample at random choosing, let's say, 10 schools from a district of 70 schools. And from each of those 10 schools, then we would randomly sample, say, 10 students from each school for a total sample size of 100. So this is a nice graphic from your text that describes uh, the different kinds of random sampling. On the left, we've got simple random sampling, where all participants, all members of the population, have an equal chance of being selected at random. In stratified random sampling, the researcher has uh, identified some characteristic upon which proportions are split. Groups, uh, according to those proportions, are created, and then from each of those groups, subjects are randomly sampled. 
in cluster random sampling, we treat the uh, clusters or the groups as the sampling units and select them at random. And then notice, for example, that we've selected the circle that contains the Q and the R, and we've got both Q and R in the group. So we select the cluster at random and then, and then um, measure all of the elements within that. So if those are schools, we collect data from all of the students within those schools. Whereas in two-stage two random sampling, we do the cluster, and then we randomly sample from the, the individuals in the clusters, uh, and we end up with a smaller sample of, of individuals. Now all of these are acceptable uh, methods of random sampling and uh, give a good degree of generalizability. We'll talk in a few minutes about some non-random kinds of sampling. And so these, all of these methods, whatever their limitations, many researchers would consider them superior in many ways to any, any non-random sampling method. As discussed in the text, there are three main types of non-random sampling in educational research. And each has certain limitations and each are used for different purposes. Uh, systematic sample is obtained by selecting every nth name in some population. Uh, that's, a, that's not one that you see very often uh, and, and there are some reasons why we'll talk about in a few minutes. In a convenience sample, a convenience sample is very common in educational research. It's also one that the authors say should be avoided if possible. Basically a convenience sample is a group that someone has access to, easy access to, and is conveniently available to be studied. A perfect example for this is a teacher researcher who has access to his classroom of students. A purposive sample is a little different. A purposive sample is selected uh, because the individuals are special in some way. Um, the, the word purposive, there, there's a purpose for selecting each of the individuals in the group, and so there's nothing random at all about this. Uh, it could be that we're selecting certain people because they have expertise or because we believe they have certain kinds of knowledge that we're interested in. Purposive sample is pretty common when you talk, start to talk about the qualitative research methodologies, and we'll talk about those as we near the end of the semester. So for the most part, we're going to avoid a purposive samples uh, in, in our course. One of, the, one of the problems with purposive samples is that so much of the judgment for the degree to which the results can be generalizable relies on the researcher's judgment about what's important in the study. And, and it's one of the things when we talked about bias in, or in the early chapters, one of the things that a purposive sample does is has the, has the ability to introduce bias into the study. In this picture of convenience sampling, the idea here is that the population of students that the professor is, is interested in generalizing to is this class of 40 math students. And so you can imagine uh, a professor adopts a new text and chooses these 10 people at the front of the classroom to ask about how they like the textbook and then generalizing um, with those results to the whole class. So if those 10 people overall say they like the textbook, that professor might say, well, okay, well, I'm going to generalize that to the group and say that the group likes the textbook. Well, I'm sure it wouldn't take us long to come up with all sorts of reasons why those 10 people may not be representative of the whole class, and that's the problem with convenience sampling. So here's a nice diagram of the three kinds of non-random sampling methods that we've discussed, convenience, purposive, and systematic. So on the left, we've got convenience. I think we've, we've pretty much covered that. Um, in the middle, purposive, so we're selecting people who, individuals who are especially qualified to answer the kinds of questions that we're interested in. And on the far right, systematic. We haven't talked too much about systematic, but in systematic, we choose based on some pattern from the group. Uh, in this case, we're going to choose the second row as they're organized in that way. Um, there are several problems with systematic that, uh, you know, at first it may seem like it may give you sort of a random kind of uh, sampling method. But the problem with systematic approaches to sampling is that if there are any inherent patterns in the, the grouping of the individuals to start with. In the text they talk about uh, if certain students are in certain sections or certain groups within the, the building and you select say the last five students in each of the class uh, rooms, if those students had been grouped according to ability ahead of time or if those classrooms had been organized according to ability or achievement 
then drawing in some systematic way upon those, say, every last student or every fifth to last student, it's very possible that you'll end up with a sample that does not represent the population. In many cases, if you can carry out a systematic sampling method, you could just as easily carry out a random sampling method. There's the ever-present question about sample size. From a practical perspective, there are a couple of things to think about in terms of sample size. One of them is what you're able to do. So in many cases, sample sizes are limited by simply what the researcher has available to them or what kinds of samples they can handle or achieve. Uh, if your sample is something that you're gathering uh, from volunteers, you know, you can only get so many people to say respond to a survey or attend a workshop uh, in which you're conducting an experiment, etc. So that's one of the conditions. That's one of the things that you have to be concerned with when it comes to sample size. Another thing that you have to be concerned with is the kinds of statistical analyses that you'll want to do given the methodology that you choose to use to answer your research questions will really help determine what the sample size should be. And, and sort of based on the kinds of statistical analyses that go with the different methodologies, there's some basic guidelines there. Uh, doing a descriptive study, a study where we're trying to describe the characteristics of a particular set of people, uh, 100 is a, is, a, is a good number, 50 for a correlational study, a study looking for a pattern between two variables within a group. And then if we're comparing groups either in an experimental or causal comparative study, 30 in each group is a good number. Now you may see in correlational studies or more commonly even in experimental and causal comparative studies, groups as small as 15 in each. And basically, while the research and the statistics allow for that, the results are not as strong because this, these sample sizes are so low. And so the recommendation is that if sample sizes get that low, then those studies should be replicated to see if the results hold true uh, in future studies. In many ways, we could have started our discussion with this concept of external validity. We've been using the term generalizability, and those two are synonymous in this sense. So the idea of, of science, of educational research specifically, is that we would like to examine a situation, a phenomena, a group of people, and look for patterns. And based on those patterns, we would like to generalize to a larger population. It's much of what we do in educational research, uh, and it's much of what tells us um, how we should proceed in educational endeavors. The the notion of external validity, and unfortunately we're going to see this word validity three times in this course, and it's going to mean three different things. External validity refers to the extent that the results of a study that you do with a sample can be generalized from that sample to a population. So for example, if you look at a group of teachers and you find that there's a relationship between the age at which the teacher enters their teacher prep program and their success in their student teaching. So that the older the student is when they enter a student teacher program, the better their results are in their student teaching. If you find that result in, say, a sample of 30 students, if you find that result, the external validity, the generalizability, is, is the degree to which you can take that result and apply it to the population, whether it be all student teachers in Illinois, in a particular university, across the country. That's the notion of external validity, the degree to which you can take those results from your sample and generalize them to the population. And the degree to which you can do that has a lot to do with how you conducted your study and in particular how you sampled. Remember when we said random sampling gives us a stronger case for generalizability. So random sampling methods give us a stronger case for external validity. Non-random sampling methods give us a weaker case for external validity. So that if we choose a convenient sample, for example, so in the example that I used where we're talking about the, the entrance age of, of uh, people being prepared to be teachers and their student teaching success, if I just choose, suppose I'm a methods teacher at a university, if I just choose my class, because that's what I have access to, as opposed to maybe using other people's classes or selecting students at random within the state or even within a university, then my case for generalizing to the university level, to the state level, is certainly harmed. I'd be better off if I could do some kind of random sampling. 
the remember that the this is another time to discuss the population remember that when we're sampling we gather data from a sample and generalize to a population we don't gather data from the population okay so there's another concept we should discuss called ecological generalizability so this refers to the extent to which the results can be generalized to other settings than those that existed in the study so for example suppose we do a study in which ESL students who receive instruction in their in their native language in mathematics are able to learn certain math concepts better than if they uh, receive that instruction in English. If that was the result that we found, an ecological generalization might be to say that the same thing may be true in a chemistry classroom, so that if we may generalize, rather than generalizing to the population, which is the population of students uh, trying to learn these math concepts, we might gen try to generalize to another subject or to another setting, in this case to another subject like chemistry. This graphic gives you a few more ideas for uh, ecological generalizations. You see on the left is our sort of standard um, external validity, the, the sense that we generalize from a sample to the population. And on the right are the ecological generalizations that we, might, that we might use in a study. So if we use a textbook in the study, we might generalize to another textbook. Or if we use a certain method, we might generalize to another method, and so on. And so that takes us to the end of our discussion of sampling. In your problem sheet for this chapter, you will discuss the kinds of sampling that you plan to do in your proposal. Remember that the first step for this is to identify the population to which you would like to generalize after you select your sample. Um, the next thing you'll do based on your methods is decide how you will sample, whether you will do a random sample, whether you would do a sample of convenience. Uh, those are things that you have to, to have to assess according to whether your study will be feasible. We want you to propose a study that you could actually do. Uh, we're not asking you to do it in this course, but we'd like you to propose something that you could do. So if you are in a particular setting and you think that the most realistic kinds of, of study that you could do would involve a sample of convenience, then you'll discuss that and you'll discuss its limitations. Um, and then when it comes time to write the proposal, a large part of the analysis section of the section where you talk about how you treated your data and how you uh, gathered your sample, you'll talk about your sampling strategy uh, and, and, and the limitations that are associated with it. All right, we'll talk to you soon.